So I don't know what it was like for you when you were a kid, when you found out how uh, babies were made. I've shared this before, and uh, today as we're continuing our, our series, What If? We're looking at some of the main themes uh, surrounding the birth story of Jesus. Last week, we looked at his genealogy. What if Jesus came for Abraham? Uh, what does that actually mean? Today, we're going to look at the virgin birth. Uh, what if Mary was a virgin? And so speaking of miraculous birth stories, when I was a kid and I found out that uh, how, how babies were made, I thought, like probably a lot of kids did, that's disgusting. Um, I actually distinctly remember, I don't know how old I was, but I distinctly remember one day standing in the front yard of our house, uh, thinking on these things, and thinking to myself and to God, thinking, God, why would you make the process by which we create humans something that people don't want to do? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, why? Like nobody wants to do that. Why would you, you know, and then I got older. And so... Um, and so all that is say, I, I have an older brother, then there's me, and then my younger brother is five years younger than me. And so couple me thinking it's gross to hearing things like when my younger brother was born or maybe after, how he wasn't planned, how they didn't, you know, they didn't expect it, they didn't think this was going to happen. And so I'm thinking, well, uh, making a baby is gross. Uh, there's uh, me and my brother, so my parents obviously did, did this thing twice. Uh, my younger brother, Logan, was an accident, so they didn't do anything. They've only, had it, they've only done it twice, and yet there's three of us. So something happened where, like, the baby was made, again, miraculously. And so we're going to go from that miraculous birth story, because clearly, again, they were my parents, so obviously they only did it two times. I mean, that's just right. <laughs> to another miraculous birth story, which is how Jesus came to the world. And so if you have a Bible, this is a great opening, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're actually going to continue a little bit. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus and the significance of that. Today, we're going to be looking at the birth story of Jesus. Um, it's worth pointing out that uh, there are two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew, which we looked at last week, and one in Luke. And there's also two accounts of the virgin birth, also in Matthew, another one in Luke. Uh, Matthew's version of the events focuses more on Joseph and Joseph's perspective. And then in Luke's version of the events, it talks about Mary's uh, genealogy and Mary's perspective. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at just Matthew's account and kind of Joseph's, Joseph's perspective on what's going on here. Again, remember the context of which it was written. The first 17 verses of Matthew are the genealogy of Jesus on Joseph's side. And so they're going to continue this theme of Joseph's perspective on it as we look at this birth account, chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says this, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together, which is before they had sexual relations, that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So Joseph thinks what everyone in all of human history thinks, that Mary is pregnant. It's obviously not his doing, and so clearly she has slept with another man. Uh, you know, what's interesting here, uh, there are hints in all the Gospels that both Mary and Joseph actually really loved the Lord. And so you see that. We're not going to get into it this morning, but it actually explicitly says it here in verse 19. It says he was a righteous man, and so not to disgrace her publicly, he decides to divorce her secretly, which is a big deal, right? In a male-dominated patriarchal society uh, where men can pretty much do whatever they want and get away with it when it comes to men and women, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't want to bring shame to her. He doesn't want to say, look what she all... He, he, had, he could do whatever he wanted, given this fact of the situation, and he decides to, I don't want to shame her. 
I want to uh, give compassion and divorce her secretly. Now, this might be a little bit confusing because it's like they're engaged, the divorce, what's going on. I think it's also worth pointing out in ancient society, uh, engagements or betrothal was a little bit different, obviously, than what we do today. How it traditionally and uh, typically looked is that when uh, the son became of age, which in this culture was a teenager, uh, his parents would look for a daughter, a young woman, for him to marry. And what would happen is the parents of the son and the parents of the daughter would essentially do a kind of a prenuptial agreement, like a contract, uh, that our children are going to marry. This is a big deal because, again, in ancient cultures, as we saw last week, uh, legal rights, inheritance, everything goes through the male side of the family. And so if you had a daughter, uh, when your daughter gets married, although she was still, you know, you still saw each other, she was still technically part of your family, uh, she was no, like, uh, everything that she did was now transferred to her husband. So any inheritance, any work that she did was all went to the husband's side of the family. So you essentially lost a source of income, for lack of a better word. You lost a contributed member of your household. And so there was a typically like a bride price that was paid. So the, the husband, uh, the parents of the father of the of the would-be uh, groom uh, would pay the would-be bride's parents a sum of money to kind of make up for the fact that they're essentially losing her as a part of her family. So there's all these things. And what would happen is you would actually technically be, could be called husband and wife before you were legally married. Uh, that would happen when this kind of prenuptial agreement came, came to pass. Uh, and also uh, betrothed couples or engaged couples uh, were not supposed to have sexual relationships before they were technically married. And so here, uh, they, you would technically, if you wanted to break off the engagement, it would be a divorce. Even though you're not married yet, there was a legal agreement already kind of agreed to. Uh, and you were not supposed to sleep with one another until the wedding actually came to pass. The problem, of course, is Mary is pregnant. But of course, we're going to see here that she's a virgin. But Joseph, like anyone, thinks that that's not possible. She obviously slept with another man, but he wants to divorce her quietly out of compassion for her. But then it says this in verse uh, 20. We'll keep 20, we'll keep going. But again, after he had considered these things, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, again, remember the context. It says in verse 20 that uh, Joseph, son of David, this is a big deal. Last week, we saw that the messianic hope for the world is supposed to come through the line of David. And so this son of David, again, it's important for us to know that this is who Jesus was. The messianic hope of the world is here. Uh, to, to do what? To save people from their sins. So Jesus literally means our deliverer, that he is going to deliver us from our sins. Now, you might be saying, Jesus, if Mary is a virgin, then Jesus isn't technically Joseph's son. Uh, two things I would say, uh, we actually see in Mary's genealogy account that her family, her family tree also uh, traces its root back to David. So he is he is actually biologically uh, from David's family line. But secondly, again, if you were here last week, we talked about how everything legally went through the father's side. And so although Joseph or Jesus isn't technically, you know, from his, you know, from him, uh, all of his inheritance, Jesus' class and society would be viewed at from Joseph's perspective. It's not unlike adoption today, right? If you adopt a child, that is your child. So Joseph is literally Jesus's son. So from the son of David... And then it says this, verse 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is the prophet Isaiah. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So Matthew 22 and 23 in your Bibles, it might be bracketed, it might be bolded. This is a reference to the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things we kind of say often here, the best way to kind of think of it is whenever a New Testament author uh, quotes a verse or two from the Old Testament, it's kind of like a hyperlink. It's not just those verses, what's supposed to bring to your mind the entire story surrounding those verses. It's not unlike today, if someone were to say a line from your favorite show, right? It would bring all sorts of imagery and emotions to you. So the question is, what is going through the people's minds as they read these two verses. So these two verses, I'm going to try to do this quickly. It's kind of confusing, but I think we'll be able to do it. Uh, it comes from a story in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, let me give you the context uh, behind Isaiah chapter 7 before we read it. What's happening at this point is that this is Israel is in, you know, they're in, the Israelites are in the promised land. Uh, they are their own kingdom. However, at this point in Israel's history, uh, the kingdom is divided. So you have northern Israel or what's known as Ephraim, which we'll see in Isaiah. And then you have southern Israel, which is also known as Judah. Now, what happens is Judah does a little bit better than Ephraim in terms of faithfulness to God, and so they last a little bit longer before they are exiled, but they are both eventually taken over. And in Isaiah chapter 7, what's happening is Ahaz is currently the king of Judah, southern Israel, which, of course, Jerusalem is part of southern Israel. And he is afraid because Ephraim, northern Israel, and Syria, I'll show you a map in a second if this is confusing, um, are kind of teaming up together to come attack Jerusalem. And so he's afraid. Now, it's worth noting that Ahaz is a wicked king. You can read more about his story in 2 Kings chapter 16, uh, but he has even sacrificed one of his own sons. Uh, he is acting like uh, their Israelite neighbors and doing some really evil things. Yet in spite of that, God is still faithful. And so what happens is that uh, Isaiah, who's a prophet, comes to Ahaz and essentially pleads with him, still trust in Yahweh, because if you do, he will save Judah. Uh, that God hasn't, that he will, uh, he will do this uh, for you. And so Isaiah goes to meet Ahaz to encourage him to still be faithful, to still trust in the Lord. And then we'll pick up the story in verse 10. It'll be on the screen so you don't have to flip there. Here's what happens next. It says, Isaiah invites, oh, sorry, I probably should actually read the Bible, not my notes. Uh, then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, spoke again to Ahaz. Now he's speaking through Isaiah. So this is Isaiah talking to Ahaz from what uh, God had told Isaiah to say to him. Verse 11. Ask uh, for a sign from the Lord. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, ask whatever you want. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. So again, Isaiah comes here and he invites, essentially he's inviting Ahaz to ask for a supernatural sign to show you that God will protect you from these two kingdoms. Even though it looks like you will not survive, God will protect you. Again, we know that Ahaz is a wicked king, and so he declines, and he actually does so with a kind of pompous, righteous arrogance, because he is quoting from passages in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that talk about how we are not to test the Lord. However, this is clearly different, because a, uh, the Lord, through Isaiah, is asking him, ask whatever you want, and I will show you that if you trust me, I will protect Judah and Israel. I will still do it. But, of course, if you read 2 Kings, here's what we also know that has happened. 
at this point, Ahaz, again, is a wicked king, has already teamed up with the king of Assyria, which, again, Assyria is the largest uh, human empire in the history of the world to date. And so what Ahaz has already done is he has taken gold out of the temple in Jerusalem and essentially bribed uh, king, uh, the king of Assyria and said, hey, take all of this, and I will also pledge my allegiance to you. What I want you to do is attack Assyria, because if Assyria is attacked, they will no longer attack me. So again, if that's confusing, here's a map. It'll be on the screen. Uh, you can ignore the black text. It doesn't really matter. But you see a couple of different shades there. So the bottom is green. Uh, that's Judah or southern Israel. This is what the king of Ahaz is a part of. Atop of the green, you see the pink, which says Israel. This is also Ephraim. This is northern Israel. Atop of that is orange. This is Syria. And atop of that is blue. It is Assyria. So here's what's happening, okay? Uh, Syria and Israel have teamed up, and they want to attack Judah. As Ahaz is terrified. He is told, trust the Lord. Of course, he doesn't do that. He does his own thing. And so what he does is he has bribed Assyria uh, with gold and other things to say, hey, here's what I'm asking you to do. They're going to attack me. I want you to attack Syria. So Assyria is going to attack Syria. And then when they do that, uh, Ahaz assumes that both Syria and Israel will be defeated, which of course they will. Right? So this is what he wants to have happen, and this is actually what happens. Assyria goes, they attack Syria, Ephraim, the threat is gone. Now, before we continue the story, again, we're going to see this. This is actually going to backfire uh, quite spectacularly in Ahaz's faith, uh, face, because instead of trusting God, he trusted himself. And so as a side note, before we read the, 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 the verses that Matthew quotes, I think it's just worth pointing out or maybe asking ourselves this question. Right, just like Ahaz, how often do we miss God's blessings because we have already made our decision? Like how often in our own life, well, we, have, we have decided we want something and we're going to go for it, no matter what, no matter what it costs, no matter what it takes, that we have decided we want this thing and we're going to do maybe things that people are recommending we not do, uh, maybe things we know we should not do, but we are trying to justify it in our minds because we want it. Now, I get it. Sometimes this is hard. Like, unlike King Ahaz, who has repeatedly gone out of his way to disregard Yahweh, it's not always that we don't want to do what God has asked us to do, but life is hard. Things can be difficult. There are all sorts of circumstances in our life that affect our decisions. But again, it's just worth pausing and reflecting that God was going to protect Judah, even in spite of Ahaz's wickedness. But he has already made up his mind of what he wants to do, and it's going to lead to all sorts of terrible consequences. And so here's what happens next. Well, verse 13, and this is what, uh, verse 14 is what uh, Matthew quotes. It says this, starting in verse 13. Said so Isaiah said, listen, house of David, which he's talking to Ahaz, like the, the, the kingly lineage of David. And he's also saying this in front of a lot of people. So this is not just a one-on-one -on -one conversation. He's in the king's court. There's many people listening. He says this, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he's talking about this child here, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows how to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. So Syria and Ephraim will be taken over. However, here's the problem, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, your people, 
in your father's house, the house of the lineage of David, such a time as has never been seen, has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So let me explain what's happening here. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there are, there's a lot of prophecies. However, most of the prophecies, I think sometimes we just assume it's like these prophets and these trants, and they're like uh, predicting all these things in the future. That's not what's happening. Most of the time, the prophets in the Old Testament are warning Israel to turn back to God and to be faithful. And they're talking about immediate things that are going to happen if they don't. Now, of course, there are times uh, where the prophets are talking explicitly about future events or certain things about the Messiah. And then there are also times where there is what is called double fulfillments, where a prophet is saying something that is happening and it's going to happen in fruition, like in these people's lifetimes. But then the New Testament writers, when they look back on these events, they see it as also fulfilled in a new and powerful way. And in sometimes in ways that the original prophets may not have even understood. And so that is what's happening here. What's happening here uh, is that Isaiah is saying literally to, that somebody in the king's court, in the presence there, that is currently a virgin, uh, he's not necessarily saying that this woman is going to be a virgin when she conceives, but right now she's a virgin. She's probably likely unmarried. There is somebody in their presence who is unmarried, but is going to have a child within, and within two to three years, Syria and Ephraim will be overtaken and Judah won't be attacked. So when it talks about the child not knowing good from wrong, it's talking about before the child really understands, you know, good and bad, the thing that you are so worried about happening, Syria and Ephraim attacking you, it will not happen. Now, again, there's lots of debates about who this woman was and all that sort of thing. We won't get into it here, but very clearly, Isaiah is talking about a baby being born in their day. And what he says comes to pass. Within a few years, we know historically, Syria and Ephraim be attacked, and uh, Judah, at least for now, is fine. However, we also know this, that the baby that Isaiah is talking about here can't be the ultimate fulfillment of Israel, because later Isaiah also tells us that there will be somebody from the line of David who will rule over the new Jerusalem, and that all the nations will look towards this Messiah for deliverance. And what happens about 60 to 70 years after this event is that Judah itself also is taken over by Assyria. So basically what's happening here is this, that Isaiah is promising, you didn't ask for a sign, but God's still going to give you a sign. And he's going to say, even though you will be overtaken, he will still be faithful. He is not going to give up on you. And of course, Matthew then reinterprets this to say, and this ultimate fulfillment is here. Now, I think it's interesting before we read Matthew 22 and 23 again to reflect and remember this truth, that God's mercy is always a gift, right? And so if you read again, Isaiah 7, the context is Israel has been unfaithful. King Ahaz is a wicked king, and yet he still provides an opportunity to experience God's blessing and protection. He declines it, and yet God says, I'm still going to preserve the line of David for the hope of the world, even though none of you have done anything that, for me to do this. And of course, if we look at the virgin birth, this is also a mercy, right? Uh, nobody decided to do this. Nobody said, hey, let's, you know, try to, let's go for the Messiah, right? Like, you know, having a baby, like, let's try to be, let's, well, I wonder if we can, that didn't happen, right? It's a virgin birth that God in his mercy has granted to us all throughout the Old Testament. God is a merciful God. And again, this is the theme that we are to think of as we read Matthew chapter one, that God's mercy is being revealed. And so this is the story that we see if you flip back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. This is what would be uh, coming up in your mind as you read these verses. Verse 22, right? Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So again, remember that the prophecy of Isaiah originally comes about when the threat of attack against Judah made it seem like Israel would be destroyed and that God's promise to Abraham that we talked about last week, that all of the nations will be blessed from this family will not happen. Right? It's a trust in me. And what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 1 is yet again, God has not given up. And what Matthew is saying is that if you trust in him and this sign in this child, you will be redeemed. Or put another way, that God redeems those who trust in him. That, that is the thought going on here, that we need to trust in the Lord, not in ourselves. And the sign of the virgin, literally in this case, a virgin giving birth, is to show you that God's redeemer is here, and you will be redeemed if you trust him. Right? Isaiah 7 offers this, trust in me. The virgin birth offers this, trust in me. Right? And the sign would be that a virgin, a literal virgin, will give birth. And this one will be the hope of the world. Now, I know that's a little confusing, and you might say, well, that's cute, right? That's a cool story. But if we're being honest, believing in a virgin birth seems kind of irrational, right? I mean, that's like, it's kind of, I mean, you know, it's kind of weird, and you see the last 50 years, a lot of attacks. Like, can you believe this isn't actually happening? In fact, there's a lot of debate, uh, you know, even Christian circles, theological circles, like, does the virgin birth actually matter? And it's not that it doesn't matter, it just it seems really unbelievable, right? And so it was interesting. I was reading a book a couple weeks ago uh, called Is Christmas Unbelievable by an author named Rebecca McLaughlin. It's a really short book, and it's talking about some of the unbelievable things uh, in the Christmas story. And uh, I just want to read a quote from the book. She says, she puts it this way, to talk about this idea is that is a virgin birth irrational? She says, the Bible's first outlandish claim is that there is one God who created our entire universe, right? This is Genesis 1 and 2, that God created, right? That's a pretty big deal, that this is not here from, from nothing, that God actually created it. She goes on to say, if this is true, then believing that Jesus was born of a virgin is not irrational. In fact, believing that God can make the whole universe out of nothing, but not believing that he could make one baby without a human father would be irrational. It would be like someone say, or saying to someone, I know you're an Olympic figure skater, but I bet you can't do a figure eight. <laughs> right? And her point here is like, what is more unbelievable? Right? What is harder to believe? Now, hear me. I know it's still difficult. I know it's still difficult, but we have a, we have a quandary, right? We got to believe in something in which is more unbelievable. In fact, it's really interesting if you look scientifically through the different uh, thoughts and processes of how they thought the universe began. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, but there is a, the Big Bang Theory was originally proposed by a Belgian priest. His name was Gorgis Lemaitre. I have no idea, but that, that's what I'm going with. You can Google it if you're like, what is his name? Anyway, uh, he was a Christian, but he was also like a physics professor. So he studied astronomy, all of these things. And in the 1930s is when his proposal of the Big Bang was originally written in scientific literature. Now, when it was first proposed, it was rejected by a lot of people. Now, what's interesting is there's always this apprehension whenever there's a new discovery, right? Like, I'm not sure about that. Um, but his, his rejection, and you can read about this historically, uh, was not because people necessarily had a problem with his, you know, his conclusions. The problem was that it went against the scientific consensus at the time that the universe had always existed, 
which, by the way, works a lot better with atheism. Right? If, the God, if the universe has always just been here, we don't have to worry about a creator God. And so you can, do, the, the, the number one problem with this was not the scientific problems, but it was the worldview of many at the time that did not want to believe that God could exist. In fact, Stephen Hawking has an extension, uh, extensive history of this. You might be familiar with him. and his book, A Brief History of Time, talking about the pushback against the Big Bang, he says it this way, it'll also be on the screen. There was therefore a number of attempts to avoid the conclusion that there had been a big bang. Not because they had a problem with the science, because they had a problem with the implication. Now, here's the thing. I'm not trying to convince you that the Big Bang happened. I have no idea. Obviously, I have no idea what happened. But I am just trying to say this. I love how Glenn Scrivener, last quote we'll read, he's an author in Australia. He puts it this way. He says this. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Now, again, this is not a dunk on atheism. This is not a, this is just a, I think it's worth pausing and considering what is more unbelievable. Because you, and then they both have complications. They both have doubts. They both have things that would make us question. Absolutely. But it is not crazy to believe in a virgin birth if we're going to grant that the universe just happened out of nothing, right? You've got to choose. The question is, which do you think is more unbelievable? If God created everything, uh, a virgin birth would be nothing, uh, would hardly be difficult for him. And that's what we see happening here. And so if we go back to verse 24, we'll read these last two verses. So of course, G, uh, Joseph here is contemplating ancient cosmology and the Big Bang and all, cre- and he's thinking these things, right? And then it says this in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. So again, Jesus' name specifies who he is. He is our deliverer. And Jesus is, giving a, is given a lot of different titles. He's given a lot of different references. Of course, one is Emmanuel, which specifies not just who he is, but what he does, that God is with us. Now, the significance of the virgin birth is also important for us in this case, that if Mary was a virgin, here's what this means, that Jesus is both human and divine, right? The virgin birth matters not just because it's an interesting story, but because of what, of the implications of it, right? So if Jesus was not born of a human, if he just like zapped down to earth, that would be difficult for us to talk about like, well, you know, the Christian belief is that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And he needed to be a human to rescue humans from our sin and darkness and through his perfect life, we are redeemed. If he just kind of zapped down here, well, to say he's fully human would be difficult for us to believe. At the same same point, him being born of a virgin also shows that he is divine. If he wasn't born of a virgin, we would clearly question his divinity because his birth story would be the same as all of ours. There's nothing different. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing divine about it. The fact that Mary was a virgin, again, shows us that he is both human and he is divine. He is not an ordinary thing. Now, that being said, here's what I want to do. I want to uh, show you today, I want to close with this. I want to show you something interesting about the beginning of Matthew's gospel and the end of Matthew's gospel. Now, if you were here last week, we did this. uh, (laughs) The biblical authors are just brilliant. They are just brilliant. And we're supposed to, you know, the idea is that you you read these things multiple times and you reflect on different things as you read them. So last week, we saw how Matthew's gospel begins and ends with the entire Hebrew Bible. We won't get into that again today. We talked about how all of it begins and ends with the Hebrew Bible. What you may not know is that it also begins and ends with the birth story 
of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Uh, and on, on the screen, it says this. Here's Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It starts like this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus. Again, last week we talked about how you can literally translate that, uh, the genesis of Jesus. And so Matthew begins verse one of his genealogy saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, given this story, here's how you could also read this, that this is the genealogy of our deliverer, the one who is with us. This is who Jesus is. He is our deliverer who is with us. And of course, what are the final words of, of Jesus in Matthew 28 before he ascends back into heaven? What does he say? And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And remember, Emmanuel, God is with us. And so this is significant for us because Emmanuel, therefore, is not just a feel-good title. It is a demonstrated action that God didn't just say a lot of nice things, but he actually came to dwell with us. And it's not because we deserved it. It's because he loves us, right? The gospel is the good news that God has come to redeem, to give grace, to give mercy, to give love, not because of you or me, but because of him, right? In other words, you can think of it this way, that God came to be with you so that you could be with him. Or if you consider the virgin birth, if you consider Isaiah chapter seven, here's what we also see. That God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on your faithfulness to him. It's not dependent on you, right? Scripture, more than anything else, is about God's plan, not your plan, not what you have done. It is about God's plan and his story of redemption. It is not about your story of redeeming yourself. It is God who has come, Emmanuel, to be with us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and honestly, what we didn't even ask for, that he came to live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserve to die, so that anybody, as we talked about in the genealogy last week, can be included into the family of God. It kind of maybe a lighthearted example. I don't know why this is what it made me think of. But when I was a kid, I don't know if you were, if you're my age, you remember this. And if you're my parents' age, you also remember this because you probably bought this. But when I was a kid, the year Razor scooters came out. I mean, they were all the thing, right? All of us have like scar tissue on our ankles from trying to do the tricks on them, when we, right? And so I remember uh, that Christmas, you know, I didn't ask for it. My older brother asked for a Razor scooter, but I did it. I wanted, I don't know what I wanted, what other th I wanted some other things. And then a couple of days before Christmas, maybe from talking to my friends or whatever, I realized that everybody's getting a Razor scooter, but I didn't ask for a Razor scooter and it's too late, right? Like it's just too late. My parents have already bought the gifts. And so I was kind of bummed. And then Christmas morning rolls around and it was one of those, you know, sometimes we had to open gifts at the same time. Like, so in our family, everyone does it one at a time, right? So it takes longer, but everybody gets to see it. But sometimes like the kids have to open gifts at the same time because they're getting the same thing. You don't want to give it away. And so we opened, we had a gift that we had to open at the same time. And lo and behold, your boy got a Razor scooter. <laughs> My parents in this situation did, but I didn't ask. Now, if I'm, if I'm being honest, here's what actually probably happened. Uh, my mom did what I didn't ask. What happened is my dad probably said, this is not on his list. Why are we buying him a scooter, right? But my mom, knowing that I wanted it, got me what I didn't even ask for. And I know that's a funny example, but this is the story of the gospel for us. This is the story of the virgin birth that God has come. That his faithfulness to you is not dependent on you asking. It's not dependent on you doing. It's not dependent on you proving yourself. It's not dependent on you never messing up. It is dependent on his love and his character and his grace for you. And so we celebrate the Christmas season, not just because it's exciting and the lights are awesome. And the f we celebrate it because it is the true story of the virgin birth, that the king of the universe has come. And his faithfulness is not dependent on you. It is dependent on him.
And so what I want to do is I want to invite the band up, and we're going to move into a time of confession. Uh, we do this every week. We take a, a minute to privately confess our sins uh, before the Lord. And we do this, again, not out of obligation, but out of invitation, that God always responds to mercy or to repentance with grace. So I just want to invite you today. Where have you been unfaithful? Where have you fallen short? Uh, where have you blown it? To give it to the Lord, to confess to him, knowing that he loves you, that he is not angry with you, that he cares for you. And all throughout scripture, there is not a single time that God does not respond to repentance with grace. And so would you go before the Lord who came for you? Would you be honest to him where you have fallen short this week? Would you ask him to forgive you, to move in your life, that you would feel his presence who has come? And then we're going to take communion together. So would you go privately and confess your sins to the Lord?